A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That's psychotic. It's, it's a, it certainly is, in my view. You, you would put that on the label of fundamentally disordered. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part two of the story of Dr. Manock, a man who was once the chief forensic pathologist for South Australia and the man who would give expert testimony in the case against Henry Keogh. So the man helping me to navigate the history of Dr. Manock is a man by the name of Dr. Bob Moles, who became involved in Henry Keogh's case in the fight to have his conviction overturned many years ago. In our previous episode, Dr. Moles would speak of absurd testimony that Dr. Manock would give in regards to injuries and causes of death in many high-profile murder trials. However, his evidence would become even more bizarre when we hear the story of the death of a young Greek man by the name of Terry Akrotitis. Um, we have the case of a young man called Terry Akrotitis. I think he was in his mid-30s and his body was found beside a radio communications tower on the outskirts of Adelaide. So this is high up on a hill got a radio communications tower and his body's found lying on the ground adjacent to the tower. Dr. Manning didn't actually do the autopsy himself. Dr. Ashby did that. She'd then gone off to Queensland to do work and it wasn't thought worthwhile to bring her back to Adelaide to explain to the coroner about the autopsy report. So Dr. Manning says he can help and he goes along to explain what Dr. Ashby's autopsy report amounts to. So Dr. Manick begins his answers when he's questioned about, well, Dr. Manick, I understand that you think this young man has fallen from the tower and committed suicide. Yes. What makes you think that? Well, there is a small building adjacent to the tower that has a hole in the roof, and I think that's where his body hit the roof of the adjacent building and then bounced onto the ground, you see. Now, what's the nature of the impact that we're dealing with here, Dr. Manick? Oh, he says, I... Only wish that I had known how far his body had fallen. And then he starts off. Would it be 150 feet, 250 feet, 350 feet, 450 feet? And then in the transcript, you can see a series of dots, which means that he's been interrupted. And the coroner says, but Dr. Manock, the tower is only 170 feet tall. So could we assume that he hasn't fallen further than that? Dr. Manning says, oh, yes, yes, I see, see what you mean. Yes, yes, fair enough, yes. Um, okay, so if he'd fallen, you know, let's say 170 feet, then his body would have hit the roof at about 100 kilometres an hour. Now, Dr. Manick, is there anything we need to know about the roof of the adjacent building that has the hole in it? Well, he says, it's, um, it's made out of concrete, he says. Um, it's two and a half inches thick, and it has three quarter inch reinforcing bars running through it and a three inch mesh. Two and a half thick concrete. Well, Dr. Manick, um, now does this young man have any serious external injuries? 
No, he doesn't. Are you surprised by that? No, I'm not. Um, well, why, why, why not? Can you explain? Well, yes, of course, it's quite simple, really. It's because, and here the language I think is important, it's because his clothing is interposed between the body and the surface that it struck. He was actually wearing just a normal shirt and a pair of jeans. He was, Dr. Manica described him falling partially inverted, which means his head was at the lowest point, so that would have hit the roof first. But apparently the, the shirt and a pair of jeans would have been sufficient to protect him from any serious damage, but it wasn't sufficient to protect the roof from the damage of his body impacting against it, you see. Okay, so let's just stop for a second and think about this for a moment. Dr. Manick is suggesting that Terry had jumped from a tower at around 170 feet in the air. As he's about to hit the ground, he would hit the top of a building, of which was two and a half inch thick concrete. The impact creates a hole, and then he bounces off and lands on the floor. Now again, thinking rationally for a minute, what do you think would happen to a person falling from 170 feet in the air, approximately 100 kilometres an hour, towards the ground, head first, and hitting concrete? Yes, exactly. It would obliterate the poor person. Dr Manick is suggesting this gentleman was protected from the fall by his clothing. So then he's asked, um, do we have any photographs of the uh, body when it was found? No, unfortunately we don't. And apparently um, one of the police investigators had gone out there as the photographer, crime scene photographer, but was unable to take a photograph because he either didn't have his flashbulb with him or he'd left his batteries behind or something like that, you see. So we don't have any photographs of the body in situ. Now, do we have any photographs of the body at the autopsy? No, he says, unfortunately, we don't. And why's that? Why don't we have photographs of the autopsy? Ah, he says, well, we did start the autopsy at um, 8.15 in the morning and the photographer doesn't arrive in until 8.30. But there's no questions then about, well, why didn't you ask the photographer to get in 15 minutes early or um, why didn't you just hang around? Surely you didn't do the autopsy in 15 minutes, did you? Any of those questions, but none of those questions are asked. So that means the photographer's absent and we don't have any photographs um, taken at the autopsy. As anyone would know and fully understand, photos at crime scenes and at something as serious as an autopsy are incredibly important. It's important evidence for a whole raft of reasons. But for one, Dr Moles says, is because of something called validity, which is the second stage of death and one of the signs of death. Dr Moles explains. Once a person dies, the heart stops beating, obviously and the blood being fluid within the blood vessels um, is then controlled by forces of gravity. And so the blood will begin settling at the lowest part of the body, except where the body is in contact with a hard surface. So if you imagine the body's lying flat on the ground, on its back, the blood will begin to settle in those areas of the lower back and the, <coughs> around the legs and so on but it won't settle in those areas which are in contact with the ground. So that would be the shoulders, um, the buttocks and so on. And they would be blanched white and the blood that's settling would begin to darken and go a purplish colour. And after a while, the blood becomes settled and congeals and, and becomes fixed. And so you can tell by the pattern of lividity and blanching what the position the body has been in for a period of time after death. 
if the police investigators come along to a scene and the pattern of blanching and lividity doesn't match the configuration of the body when it's found, for example, if in that case I mentioned, the body had been lying on the ground for a while and then it was thought to put him into a car and push the car off a road and then it would look like it was a death in a car accident, you could see from the pattern of lividity that the lividity isn't around the legs and the lower part of the body, but along the back, and that would immediately put the crime scene investigators on notice that this has been a set-up scene. What then comes into question is time of death, which had already been established by the person who actually originally carried out the autopsy. But Dr Manock would apparently correct this at trial. Well, Dr. Manor, I understand that uh, um, Dr. Ashby had said she thought this young man had died about 12 hours before his body was found. And Dr. Manor said, ah, he said, you see the word discovered. She didn't actually mean to use that. What she meant to say was he died 12 hours before his body was undressed at the autopsy. Now, the difficulty is that um, we, so we found that uh, 12 hours before his body was found would have placed him in Yankalilla police station because he was being questioned by the police that morning but now to transfer it to 12 hours before his body was undressed at the autopsy removes him from the situation of being a possible death in custody to an accident suicide something else conveniently dr manock's time of death takes the victim out of police custody when this death apparently took place however there is one vital issue with what Dr. Manock is saying, and that is the maths. So Dr. Manock is busily explaining that we don't have any photographs and that the young man had now died 12 hours before his body was undressed at the autopsy. So his body's undressed at the autopsy at 8.15 in the morning. That obviously means he died at 8.15 the previous evening. But the police found his dead body at 6 o'clock that evening. So that would have meant that he died two and a half hours after the police found his dead body already stiffening with rigor mortis. Rigor mortis, as I'm sure you know, takes about 8 to 10, maybe 12 hours to develop. So the figure given by the person who did the autopsy was almost certainly correct and a sensible inference to draw. And the facts being put by Dr. Manhoff were absurd. I mean, he couldn't possibly have died two and a half hours after the police found his dead body. This is a coronial inquiry. And you would think that by the counsel assisting the coroner, or the coroner, or some other person who simply got a basic knowledge of how to count, would have said, hang on, and it got in that can't be right, he can't die. Two hours after the police had his dead body, that wouldn't work, but it didn't. And that would have opened up a line of inquiry about whether this was a genuine suicide. So it would appear that Dr Manock was not just seemingly sending innocent people to prison or potentially covering up suspicious deaths. He would also go on to misdiagnose the deaths of three infant children. Just another word of warning, some people may find the following story distressing. Listener discretion is advised. So we have three young babies, they're all under one year of age, and Dr Manock has done the autopsies on all three of them. They're completely separate cases. They're not related to each other and they happened at different times and different places and so on. 
But the common factor is that Dr. Manneke diagnosed the cause of death as being bronchopneumonia. Bronchopneumonia is a type of pneumonia that inflames the tiny air sacs inside the lungs. In an autopsy, this would be diagnosed by taking scrapes from the lungs, placing them onto slides and then staining them with a solution to determine the presence of the infection. So the police and the doctors at the hospital became a little concerned by Dr. Manok's theory. They believed the children may have died from some form of abuse or non-accidental injury. They would raise their concerns with the coroner and the coroner would agree to hold an inquiry into the deaths of all three children and subsequently commissioning Professor Tony Thomas as an independent pathologist to review the autopsy. And he reported that there was in fact absolutely no signs of bronchopneumonia in any of the children. However, this is what he did find. He then went on to say that one of the babies had two serious fractures of the skull, another baby had 15 broken ribs, and the other baby had such a serious fracture of the spine that the specialist in the Women and Children's Hospital said, I've only seen an injury as bad as that once before in my 30-year career dealing with these incidents, and that was when a baby was left unrestrained on the back seat of a car when it hit the tree, the baby went out through the window. He said, that's the sort of force you need to cause that sort of injury. We're talking about very young babies. They're all under one year of age. One was three months, the other was nine months, the other was nine months. And they all had suffered unspeakable injuries. And Dr Manick diagnosed the cause of death as bronchopneumonia. The chief forensic pathologist for South Australia failed to pick up on broken ribs, fractures and a spinal injury so severe that doctors had only ever witnessed the same injury from an infant being unrestrained in a car during a crash. Instead, however, he diagnosed something that wasn't even there. The coroner then completes his report in which he says, Dr Manick's autopsies on these babies have achieved the opposite of their intended purpose. He actually closed off investigations instead of opening them up. Once the autopsy reports were presented, the police had to cease their inquiries into possible homicides, infanticides or manslaughter because the babies have died of a naturally occurring disease process and they have nowhere to go with their other inquiries. He also said that uh, in answer to some of the questions on oath, Dr Manick had given answers that were spurious and that means not genuine, not from their intended or reputed source not honest. To give answers on oath that are not honest, as sure everyone will know, means that you could well have committed perjury, and that's a serious criminal offence. The coroner also said that Dr Manick must have claimed to have seen things that could not have been seen, such as signs of pneumonia, because they didn't exist. And Dr Manick was asked, well, why did you think and what did you see of signs of this? And so... Dr. Manok um, couldn't explain why he thought it was pneumonia, but the effect of his autopsy is that he's giving evidence that to the coroner makes no sense at all. We now have a, an extremely damning report against Dr. Manok from the coroner, stating that Dr. Manok had in layman's terms, completely screwed up the autopsy and fabricated his results. A report that surely, once released, would find him completely negligent 
and would stop him from testifying at any future trials, let alone another murder trial. However, instead of releasing the report, the coroner holds off. Why? He said he'd just completed his report and he was about to release it when he became aware that Mr Keogh was about to go on trial next week. And so he said, I didn't want the release of my report on the baby deaths to interfere with Mr Keogh's trial. And so I decided, of my own volition, he said, to keep it back and not to release it until after Mr Keogh's trial had been concluded. And of course, the question then is, this is information in possession of the Crown. Is there a duty to disclose that to Mr Keogh, his lawyers, or to the court? And the answer clearly is absolutely yes. So what you see is the coronial report is dated prior to Mr Keogh's trial and was released two days after Mr Keogh was found guilty of murder. Dr Manock would go on to give his evidence at Henry Keogh's trial. And, as we know, Henry is subsequently found guilty of murdering his then fiance Anna Jane, then going on to serve over 20 years in prison before his eventual release. However, there is also another high-profile murder case involving Dr Manock and a man who has spent 40 years in prison for that crime, of which he says he's innocent of. So we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, Dr Moles will take us through that case. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. In 1984, a man by the name of Derek Bromley was jailed for life for the murder of Stephen DeCosa, whose body was found floating in Adelaide's River Torrens. 
Here's Dr Moles. When we come to the Bromley case, Mr Bromley was alleged to have gone down to the river in Adelaide one night, shortly after he'd been released from prison. It was said that he had propositioned some young fellow who was there for some sort of sexual engagement, and the other fellow was supposed to have said, no, I'm not like that, I don't want to do that. And it was then suggested that Bromley had then got angry and attacked him, kicked him, bashed him, dragged him along the ground, and then drowned him in the river. And with Bromley, um, there was also a, an eyewitness who said, um, I actually saw Mr Bromley bash this fellow and drag him along the ground and drown him in the river. The difficulty was that the eyewitness in this case was suffering from what's called the schizoaffective disorder on the evening that the incident had occurred. That meant that he had schizophrenia and he was also bipolar. And that's said to be an unusual combination of um, factors. Um, he was suffering from both visual and audible hallucinations at the time the incident was said to have occurred. Um, that means that he was seeing things that weren't there and hearing things that weren't there because of the disordered state that he was in. He actually thought he was the King of Adelaide. And as the prosecutor said to the jury, well, we, we know that that's not true because we don't actually have kings in Adelaide, so that can't be quite right. And he also thought he was a top league footballer. And the prosecutor explained to the jury, that's not right either. He thought he was an expert in Kung Fu, which is also not quite right. But the prosecutor then said, even though he's mistaken about these other factors, there's no reason to think that he might be unreliable when he said he saw Mr. Bromley attack this fellow and bash him and drown him in the river. Um, he could be rightly wrong on that stuff, but right on this stuff. Um, at the time of Mr. Bromley's appeal, he had five of the country's leading experts um, on psychiatry and psychology, five of them, including the Crown's own expert who agreed with the four defence experts. And they were all agreed that the evidence as presented to the jury at the time of the trial about the eyewitness um, was unreliable um, and uh, not correct. What they said was the extent of this man's cognitive deficits are so severe that in fact he couldn't know whether what he saw was coming from outside stimuli or just from the fact that his brain is operating in a disordered fashion. Um, and so, therefore, anything that he thought he saw um, or said he saw um, has to be regarded as inherently unreliable. His evidence could only be accepted as being potentially reliable if it is, in fact, confirmed by somebody else to be so. And that, in fact, means his evidence shouldn't have been admitted. And then we come to the pathology evidence again. We had two of the experts who gave evidence on Mr Keogh's appeal who are now giving evidence on Mr Bromley's appeal. Professor Tony Thomas and uh, Dr Matthew Lynch from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Professor Thomas for the defence, Matthew Lynch for the prosecution. Um, and we also have uh, another pathologist who's giving evidence, uh, Dr Byron Collins um, from Melbourne. All of the pathologists are agreed with each other. Dr Manick's evidence is unreliable. Dr Manick didn't know how to diagnose a drowning case. He didn't do a proper autopsy. Once he said he thought it was a drowning case, he didn't look for anything else. Therefore, we can't exclude the possibility of a death from natural causes. And Dr. Manick said that the bruises and damage to the body had specific causes that cannot be correct. The body was immersed in water for five days. It's impossible to determine the actual cause of injuries. So when Dr. Manick said this was a kick, this was a punch, 
This is where he was dragged along the ground, possibly because that happened to coincide with factors contained in the witness statements. Um, that can't be true. What the pathologist said was, from the evidence available to us, we cannot identify the cause of injuries in this case. At the original trial, Dr Manock had stated that the injuries to the deceased were consistent with the description of the assault from the eyewitness. However, at Mr Bromley's appeal, no less than three experts, including the Crown's own expert, would agree that this evidence from Dr Manock was incorrect. And when Dr Manock said all of the injuries were caused at or about the time of death, which is exactly what he said in the Keogh case, at or about the time of death, around the time of death, Perry Morton and so on, and that's simply not, no it's not true in the Keogh case. And now we find out that the experts are saying it can't be true in this case either. They then added, it is clearly possible that all of these injuries could have been caused in the post-mortem, that means after the fellow died. And what they explained was, when a person dies and falls into a busy waterway like a, a river, the body will first sink to the bottom um, as the lungs begin to fill with water. The body will go down in the water. It'll roll around on the bottom, and if there's rubble or uh, debris on the bottom, it'll bump against that, and that will cause injuries to it. The body is the, then begins to fill with gases from the process of putrefaction. It will begin to rise in the water. The body will be face down, the arms are hanging down, the head is forward exposed, and uh, given the movement of the water, almost certainly would bang against any um, any objects in the water. And if there are boats going up and down, they might well bang against it and cause injury to the body. Um, but they wouldn't know that they've just think they bumped into a dead body, but they just a bump, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so therefore, it's possible, they said clearly, it's possible that all of the injuries could have been caused in the post-mortem period. Um, there is no evidence of a homicidal assault. At the appeal in this case, you have experts stating that the eyewitness testimony should have been completely disregarded due to his unique condition and multiple forensic experts stating that the pathologist's report was completely incorrect. The appeal would last for two weeks, but Dr Moles says that Mr Bromley's defence counsel did something rather odd. The sad thing was that although the content of the expert reports in Mr Bromley's case, especially on the pathology side, were very, very similar to the evidence given on the uh, Henry Keogh case by the same pathologists, a very curious thing happened. Mr. Bromley had said to his lawyer, who's representing him, one of Sydney's most reputable QCs, um, a fellow called Greg James QC, former Justice of the Supreme Court, the former Appeal Court judge in Sydney, and he's handling Mr. Bromley's appeal. Mr. Bromley has, has written to him and said, please, on my appeal, make the fact that Dr. Manick wasn't qualified to do autopsies wasn't qualified to give evidence. The first point on my appeal, because when the court hears that, they will have to disregard the entirety of his evidence. Mm. It doesn't matter whether he was actually right or not. He didn't have the status to give that evidence to the court. So therefore it has to be excluded. And I had said similar things to the other barrister that was working with the QC over the three years that they were preparing the appeal. The appeal lasted for two weeks. On the last afternoon of the appeal, the QC stands up and says to the judges, the three judges, I would like to um, withdraw the following documents. And then he numbers a series of documents, number one, number three, number five, number seven, and so on. And the judges are sitting there striking out these documents as to be disregarded. And I didn't know at the time, of course, what they were. And when we went out afterwards, 
we found out that all of these documents were those which said Dr. Manick is not qualified, Dr. Manick's evidence should be held to be inadmissible. All of that was removed from the court record. Um, and no explanation for that has ever been given. After the appeal closed, the judges then came back with a judgment uh, sometime later, and they said, we're refusing Mr. Bromley leave to appeal. We don't think that he's actually raised an argument sufficient to be heard as part of an appeal process. I should mention that part of the reason for that was that the prosecution and, um, put in a rather new issue that hadn't been raised on any of the previous appeals. You understand we're talking about this new right of appeal, mm -hmm. and part of the new right of appeal says that you must have fresh and compelling evidence that would be worth sufficient to grant you leave to appeal. But the prosecution came up with a novel argument in Mr Bromley's appeal. If we could establish that Mr Bromley had been previously convicted of another serious criminal offence, a sexual assault, then you, the appeal court, might take the view that it wouldn't be in the interests of justice to hear his appeal against his conviction for murder. That's an astonishing proposition, I have to say. Um, the idea that evidence in relation to a matter that's not the subject of the conviction or the appeal could now be brought in this late stage of the game and be said that that might be a reason for not hearing his appeal against his actual conviction for murder is a startling proposition. You can't have the appeal court hearing evidence from the prosecution and saying, look, we know that evidence we put forward against this fellow at the time of the trial has got some holes in it, mm. but we think we can provide you with some other evidence now to block up those holes and to make the case sound again. All they can do is determine the evidence that has been heard by the jury. And so for the Crown, or Mr Bromley's appeal, to say that the new right of appeal introduces the right to... It must be uh, in the interests of justice, and that allows us to fundamentally change the way in which we can present evidence on a criminal appeal. I think it's just manifestly absurd. Mr Bromley's appeal was denied and has since been taken to the High Court of Australia to be looked at, which has taken some time so far. Initially, the appeal is usually heard by two judges, but in this instance, it was heard by three those three judges said that they would be referring the matter to the full court of the High Court, which is in fact five judges. So they would not be granting leave to appeal, they are just referring it to the full court. However, this came with one condition. That is, when it goes to the full court, as on appeal, we don't want any reference being made to the pathology evidence. It's not to be mentioned at all. We're hearing it simply on the evidence of the eyewitness. Um, and then I was um, looking at the submissions that were made by the prosecutor in the case. And in the, in the course of the submission by the Crown, what they said was, the High Court should have regard to the evidence of Dr. Manock as given at trial and the way it was handled by the prosecution and defence at the trial. And I was very concerned about that because they're now saying, even though you're going to focus the appeal on the evidence of the eyewitness, we all know that the court has to consider that evidence in the context of all of the evidence at the trial. That's the way the appeal laws work. If there's an error, consider the significance of the error in the context of all of the evidence at the trial. And what the prosecutor is then inviting the court to do is to consider the pathology evidence as given by Dr. Manick at the trial, the way it was handled by prosecution and defence at trial, as 
the evidence which provides the context the eyewitness evidence. They're not looking at the history of his, you know, all these basic rubbish that he's come up with and the fact that he wasn't qualified to do the job. They're literally looking at the evidence that was presented, how it was handled in the, in the court, and so they're looking at it as this was the evidence that he gave, this was how it was handled, so this is the evidence. That's what the prosecution is inviting the High Court to do. Dr Moles has subsequently written to not one but now three successive Attorney-Generals to state that they must direct the DPP or the Director of Public Prosecutions to fulfil their duty of disclosure to the High Court, meaning that if they're in possession of any evidence that would bring into question the credibility or competence of a Crown witness, that must be disclosed to the court. Now, on two occasions, Dr Moles has not had much luck. In fact, one of the Attorney-Generals would go as far to state that they did not, in fact, have the power to give any orders to the DPP, quoting a certain section of the DPP Act, Section 9. Well, of course, Dr Moles went to this apparent section of the Act and it, in fact, states that the Attorney-General does have the power to direct the DPP to do something under certain circumstances in which this case falls. However, this Attorney-General would subsequently move on from office and Dr Moles would have to write again to the new Attorney-General. I think it's important to point out that Mr Bromley, after 40 years incarcerated, has been eligible for parole since 2006. But his applications have always been denied. The simple fact that he is not willing to accept that he committed this crime. Dr Manock spent decades as the chief forensic pathologist, conducting thousands of autopsies and giving evidence in over 400 convictions, all while he was unqualified to do so, leaving a trail of destruction as he went. But why? It's a question Dr Moles and I discussed, and then Dr Moles told me a story that was truly disturbing. We have to look at the man's motivations. I was going to say, I was actually going to ask what do you think his motivations are, because... Yeah, was it was it purely like the limelight, or, or what was it? What was he? Why was he continuing to do what he was doing? Well, the thing is, you see, that if he was genuinely interested in forensic pathology, and I, I've met a great many forensic pathologists who are extremely capable and talented, it's not everybody's cup of tea. Of course, it's a difficult task, and so on. The important thing is that with people like um, Professor Tony Thomas, um, Professor Dick Shepherd from the UK, um, Professor Derek Pounder from the UK, um, look. They're jolly people. They're nice people to go out and have a, have a drink with or have a chat with and whatever. Um, and we, we, we can laugh and joke about things as we do. I have never come across any of them um, who, when we're talking about a case or a forensic pathology issue, who laugh and joke about those things. It's just not part and parcel of what they do. They do take their work very, very seriously and they appreciate the importance of it. So let's look at what Dr Manor did. He's called to a place called Mintby, which is up in the South Australian outback, and a man has been shot, and he's lying dead in the main street of this tiny little outback town. Um, and Dr Manick goes to the scene. And there's a policeman there, Dr Manick, who he sees is this very important person who's just flown in from Adelaide and all the rest of the scene. There's a big power imbalance there. And he says to him, well, Dr Manick, are you going to take the body back to Adelaide to do the autopsy? And Dr Manick says, no, I think we'll do it here. And the policeman understands him to mean I'm going to do it somewhere locally. And so he's trying to be helpful and he says, look, there's a little pub over there. Um, it's got a cool room attached to it. Um, and I've spoken to the owner and he's very hopefully agreed that if he wanted to make use of that, 
he's got it all cleared out, and so you could use that as a place where you could do. It's, it's the best place we have available. And Dr. Manick then surprises him by saying, no, 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 he says, you misunderstand me. I'm going to do it here. And then the policeman tricks on and says, what, like in the, in, in the street here? And Dr. Manick says, yes, yes, that's what that's catching on now. So he has two large empty oil drums brought over. He has a sheet of corrugated iron placed on top. He has the man's body stripped off and laid on top of the corrugated iron. In the affidavit of the policeman, it says, in front of the local traders, the passers-by, and the people who just happened to be standing around, the man took his instruments out and removed his chest, um, exposing the bodily organs from within. Um, and then he started removing each of the bodily organs, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, all that sort of stuff. But having had a look at it, he drops it into a little metal bucket that he has sitting beside him. And when the body cavity is empty of the body organs, Dr. Manick is then said to have picked up a ladle and scooped up the fluids from within the chest cavity. And with his arm extended towards the assembled crowd, he made an inappropriate remark. And what he said was, does anybody fancy a slurp? Now, I can't begin to describe what I think about that. And every time I mention of it, uh, it makes me feel ill. But he, in front of the man's people who knew him, it's his, this is his little tiny turn, he's um, dismembering a body in front of people, um, treating it as some sort of performance art. Um, and it's, uh, words can't begin to describe how sick and terrible that is. As you said, you know, we can all have a joke and we can all have a laugh. And, you know, I know especially in the, in the my, my brother was a former police officer and, you know, he said, you know, police have got a dark humour because you're dealing with, you know, horrendous things and that sort of stuff and that's how you get through these things. But there's it's having... Extension. Yeah, yeah, there's having dark humour and then there's just being... That's psychotic. It's, it's a, it certainly is in my view. I'm, I'm no psychiatrist no, or no, psychologist. No, 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 me either, but I mean, yeah. You, you, you would put that on the label of fundamentally disordered behaviour and thinking. And the treat, it's not the way to treat a person who's deceased, and it's a complete note of disgrace. Now, the interesting thing about that is that this occurred in the in public. It occurred in the open. People saw it. I have a report from somebody who was working in Adelaide at the time, who's a legal person, and he says, oh, I, I, I joined this, this legal firm in 1980, so that's some shortly after the incident had occurred. He said everybody in the office was talking about what Dr. Manick had done up at Mendeby. It was the talk of the town. People knew about it. And so the question then is, but why didn't somebody Yes, why hasn't, why hasn't someone stepped in? Why has not anybody stepped in and said, what is going on? Over 27 years, he conducted 10,000 autopsies. And through that time, Senior legal people knew for certain that he wasn't qualified. His employers knew he wasn't actually qualified to do autopsies. The prosecution, suppose you say, well, the prosecution has a duty to disclose anything that's in their possession, you know, any information that might have helped the Crown, helped the defence, or opened up a new line of inquiry. And then you have somebody who comes along and say, yeah, but this particular prosecutor didn't actually know about that. You say, it doesn't make any difference. The prosecutor, the individual prosecutor, is deemed to know what the Crown 
itself knows. So if there's any body which is incorporated as part of the crown, whether it's a forensic scientist, whether it's the police, or whether it's uh, anybody else, if they know something, the person prosecuting is deemed to have that knowledge. Do you see what I mean? So if the Crown has withheld important information, um, then the person's entitled to have their conviction overturned. So it really wouldn't help anyone to say, but the actual prosecutor didn't know. That doesn't matter. If the Crown had it in its, in, 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 within its um, uh, body of knowledge, then they're obliged to, to let the, uh, um, the accused and the court know. One of the interesting things that happened, you see, leading up to the Keogh and Bromley cases is the, um, the case of Mrs. Emily Perry. She was actually, it's a strange case because her husband had, had feared of coughing and chestiness and things like that. So he goes to see his doctor who refers him to the hospital and the chap at the hospital is obviously trying to help. And he thinks, I wonder if Dr. Manock could help us with this. He, he's knows about some of these unusual cases and so on. So he refers the matter to Dr. Manock. Dr. Manock comes back and says, I would look at the possibility, the suspicious behavior going on, and it might well be that he's been given some sort of uh, arsenic poisoning, which has caused him to have this chesty cough and feeling unwell and things like that. So eventually, these reports find their way through to the police, and the prosecutors, and so on. And Mrs. Emily Perry is charged with administering arsenic poisoning to her husband to try and kill him, attempted murder. And her husband's there at court saying, no, 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 she didn't do anything like that. He said, I spend my time working on old pianolas and pianos, and that's my, my hobby, and that's what I do. And probably some of the old rat poison or some of the crumbling lead pipes and things like that. He says, it's got nothing to do with it. So anyway, Dr. Maddox then says, ah, but she did know a couple of people who died in what I now think to be suspicious oh, circumstances some God. years back. It's a couple of people have died that she knows, and now there's another one sort of feeling a bit dodgy. Anyway, so she's now charged with the attempted murder of her husband. She's convicted. She gets 15 years hard labour. Um, she goes up to the appeal court in South Australia, and they say, well, there's nothing wrong with this, affirms the conviction. It then goes up to the High Court, and we're talking around about 1980, and the High Court says, Dr. Manick's evidence is not fit to be taken into consideration. And then they add for good measure. And the prosecution services in South Australia should use people who are substantially and not just nominally experts in their field. So the High Court saying, this man clearly isn't an expert. This evidence is not fit to be taken into consideration. I mean, it's absolutely insane. It's, well, I, bonkers is the word I usually yeah, use. When I, I absolutely incredible why they don't make that ruling and then get rid of him. So what, did, it, did, did he end up getting fired or does he just, you know... Now, what, what happened was that after he'd given his... Um, after the baby deaths inquiry, um, and you remember that the coroner was going to withhold his report mm, so the doctor manager could go and give evidence of Mr Keogh's trial, my understanding is that... Uh, um, Dr. Manick resigned um, in the week before he gave evidence at the Keogh trial. And I can only infer from that that maybe the understanding was that, look, if you resign now, give evidence at the Keogh trial, and then the report will only be released after that, and that means that you'll preserve your entitlements to your pension and all the rest of it. But if I release the report um, and you still are in position in your as the chief pathologist, um, and that will lead to an inquiry, um, and you may get sacked, 
and then you may lose your entitlements. So it looks a bit like you know, maybe this is the arrangement to get him out of the position. This is the story of South Australia's chief forensic pathologist, Dr Manock. Thankfully, former. Of course, I want to say a huge thank you to Dr Bob Miles for his time and uh, taking us through this incredible story uh, of Dr Manock. If you want to find out more on this story and other cases that Dr Manock has been involved in, you can check out Dr Bob Miles' website, all the details of which are in the description of this episode. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.